Ezra chapter 8 this evening, going through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation on Sunday evenings. If you don't have a Bible and you're with us tonight, men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, just wave to them and get their attention and they'll be happy to get a Bible in your hands. We try to cover a little bit of territory on Sunday nights and much easier to follow along uh, if you have a Bible. When we came to the end of chapter 7, we want to remember we're dealing now with Ezra. Last week we came to uh, the character or the servant of the Lord that the book of Ezra is named after. It could have just as easily been named Zerubbabel because uh, he was the main character in the early part of the book. But Ezra comes on the scene in chapter 7 and we saw that his focus in coming, he led a second uh, group of Jews back into the land of Israel, into Jerusalem. Uh, Zerubbabel led the first return from Babylonian captivity, or really kind of Persian captivity by that time. And he led the Jews from their captivity with the purpose of rebuilding the temple. Ezra comes on the scene about 70, 60, 70 years later. He leads another group of Jews uh, back into the land of Israel, but his purpose is different. The temple's built. There's no need to reestablish all of that. He is going back in order to teach the word of God to God's people so that they'll know how to conduct themselves in the worship of the Lord at the temple, but also in their personal lives. It's kind of a funny thing, because here he is, he's way off in, in kind of Persia, and he gets this prompting on his heart that he is to return to the land because there is a great need for the teaching of the Word of God among the Jews uh, in Israel. And what kind of evidence he had for that beyond the voice of God, I don't know. All I know is that once he got there, he was going to find out very, very quickly how much that thing that God had called him to was needed. One of the great things about walking with the Lord for a while is to see how God works both ends of situations in our life when he's leading us. And it doesn't mean he removes faith. He can prompt us to do something. And we look around and say, well, I mean, if, I, if, if you aren't in this, God, I'm sure going to look stupid. Like we never looked stupid before we became Christians. Like we've got a reputation left to salvage. So, but there is that, that kind of feeling on something like that. And then you take that step of faith. You say, Lord, as best as I can hear you, I'm supposed to do this. I'll do it. And, uh, uh, and just help my wife to remarry and for the kids to bond with whoever, you know. So it just looks like it's not going to work out at all. And we're going to die in it. And then you take that step and you do it. And then, boy, all of a sudden you see the need. And that's what's going to happen uh, with him. And so his task was to come establish the law of God as the standard for uh, national uh, practice and national um, decision-making, but also an individual decision-making as well. And in Chapter 7, we saw that the Persian king Artaxerxes uh, 
gave, granted Nehemiah the desire of his heart. He's a skilled scribe, very skilled in the word of God to return to the land, to do this, which was obviously something that was important to him and that he loved to do. And not only uh, in the Artaxerxes gave him a decree in order to take that decree to the local governors and not only to be able to begin his ministry of teaching the word of God, but also to be supplied by tax dollars and tax exempt status was granted granted to anybody that was involved in the service uh, at the temple. And so this is the condition of the kind of setting the stage for chapter eight. So he's very encouraged at this point. The doors that the Lord is opening up and these are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of of Artaxerxes. And so beginning in verse 2 all the way through verse uh, 14, there's a list of uh, the major men or the major heads of major families uh, related to the Jews. And then uh, under each of the names of the heads of these tribes or these families was the listing of the numbers of those who accompanied uh, them. The total, if you total all of it up, is 1,514 uh, from those uh, from 18 uh, of these uh, Heads of the families and those that followed them in this women and children would have been added. So you probably would have had a total of somewhere between four and five thousand way down. From the almost 50,000 that came with Zerubbabel to build the temple. Now, we don't know anything. At least I don't know. I mean, if you can trace your genealogy to any of these people that are listed, that's fabulous. But we don't know anything more than the names of these men that are listed in those uh, 11, 12 verses there. But the one thing that we do know about them is they shared uh, Ezra's heart for the word of God. And they recognized the great need for God's people to be steeped and discipled in the word of God. So we don't know anything else about them, but we know they're going to leave the relative comfort of uh, that captivity under now Persia, the Medes, and all that was happening after Babylon. They're going to leave that, and they're going to go on a 900-mile journey covering a space of four months in order to have the Word of God taught to God's people. So these are really a special listing of people that are listed here. Now, the fact that only, you know, this group of slightly over 1,500 men took this step, uh, to go there to teach the word of God, it can't be, you know, it certainly isn't a very good reflection upon the spiritual condition uh, of the Jews that were living in Babylon at the time. There was a huge number of Jews. Artaxerxes opens the door, whoever wants to go back to the land. I remember being a Jewish person, all the promises associated with the land. Promises related to the Messiah who hadn't been born yet. The children of Israel, they yawned a collective yawn to the invitation. Such a small number of people took advantage of the opportunity. It just were, uh, wasn't a concern to them. Jesus spoke in the parable of the soils where the sower went out to sow the seed and it fell on four different kinds of soils. And, and the one soil had the thorns in it and all in 
The seed went and began to grow, but the weeds grew up and choked out any of the fruitfulness. And the point that he made there was beware of the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world. And it appears that that had choked out any vision related to the advancement of God's kingdom, eternal purposes related to their lives. Most of them just looked and said, I'm perfectly content with a life that I'm living and I'm not going to move uh, in, in that direction. After all, it's God's problem. He'll take care of it and uh, he'll do it without me. Kind of leaning into the heavy election kind of side of the teaching of the Bible. The Bible says in Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he said to them, those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. And he's talking about Christians comparing ourselves to other Christians in order to come to a conclusion about our spirituality. The problem is, is if you belong to the church of Corinth and the church of Corinth was absolutely carnal, they were Christians absolutely on their way to heaven, no doubt about it. Tap, tap, no erases. I mean, we wouldn't cast any doubt on it at all. They're absolutely dominated by their flesh. And, and so if you were in that fellowship, as Paul said, listen, you don't want to come to a conclusion that you are a super um, amazing spiritual Christian by comparing yourself to the low level of spirituality in this church. So we come to conclusions about how spiritual we are based upon the high standard of God's word. And so really not a very good thing. It doesn't reflect well upon uh, the children of Israel at this point that so few of them uh, got involved. I remember hearing the old story. Uh, it's been a few years, but I remember hearing the old joke a few times when I was a new Christian that uh, kind of uh, the body of Christ or Christianity is like uh, a football game where you have 100,000 people, spectators in the stands, badly in need of exercise. Watching 22 people on the field badly in need of rest. <laughs> and I don't think the proportion is quite that bad, but uh, Jesus said uh, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, so we know that it always uh, reflects upon every generation and has something uh, to speak to us. And so here they were getting ready. And uh, Ezra said, now I gathered them, all of these people, by the river that flows to uh, 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 I know. I'm, I'm de debating whether to pronounce it after the cosmetic chain uh, that's over there. So we'll, we'll just do that. Uh, Ahava. Um, on that, and it's, uh, and we'll just trust they don't hear. And so they camped there for three days. So now they're all ready to go and, and get moving, and they camped three days, probably for final preparations. And then Ezra, he looked among all of the people, the Jews that were returning, and the priests, and he found none of the sons of Levi there. What? That's worse yet. The Levites had been called by God to teach the word of God to the children of Israel. That was a God-given responsibility to the Levites. And to perform the duties at the temple. They get the word from Artaxerxes. That's their whole reason for existing. 
That's the encapsulation of their life purpose. They get a decree that they have almost no hope of hearing in their lifetimes. It comes, and again, the Levites yawn a collective yawn at the invitation of God to do the very thing they've been called and raised up to do. Not one of them shows up. There's not one single member of the tribe of Levi with this calling on their life steps up to be a, take advantage of this opportunity. Well, that didn't reflect uh, very well at all uh, related uh, uh, to them. And, and so here is Ezra. He sees all of this and no Levites here. And, he's, and that's an unacceptable situation to him. And so I sent for Eliezer, uh, Ariel, uh, and then these other guys that are all listed right here. And also for uh, Joireb and Elnathan, men of understanding. And he, so he sends this delegation of, of 11 men, nine leaders, and uh, two men of understanding. Uh, and he gave them a command for Edo, the chief man at the place, that place right there, Ceres. And he told them that they, what they should say to Edo and his brethren, the, the Nethanim, at the place there, that they should bring us servants for the house of God. So he knows, I know where there's some Levites. I know where their family hangs out. And I'm going to send and I'm going to request that uh, they be sent that they send some Levites along on this trip. And then by the good hand of our God upon us, he notices the hand of God in every little thing in his life. I love Christians like that. Again, we saw last week, every good and perfect gift comes down from our God in heaven, Father of lights. And and it's wonderful to be around Christians who just notice every blessing of the Lord and then make mention of it. That's the way Ezra was. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, of the sons of Levi, the son of Israel named Sherebiah with his sons and brothers, 18 men from that particular uh, bloodline, and Hashabiah and with him uh, Jeshaiah and the sons of Merai, his brothers and their sons, 20 men, so we've got 38, and then also 38 Levites going to come on the trip, also of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim. This was a group that David had put together to be. The, the Levites were assistants to the priests, and then David established this order to be assistants to the Levites, and so all of them were designated by name. And then I proclaimed a fast there. At the river of Ahava. There we go. That's a, that's the second rendition of the name. That we might humble ourselves before our God and to seek it from Him the right way for us and our little ones and all of our possessions. For, so that He calls a prayer meeting uh, here, and, and before they begin the trip. And they fasted, just humbling themselves before the Lord. Prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God. Lack of prayer is an expression of our independence of God. And so he wants to honor God among all these people. This trip is all about God. I want you to know what we're getting into here. 
This isn't this is a spiritual thing. And we're going to acknowledge God in, in, in right from the beginning and in, in what we're going to do here. And so they express their dependence upon him for the success uh, of the mission. And specifically, we're told that they sought the Lord for wisdom and for protection. That whole route route that they were going to follow from uh, the area of Babylon all the way to Israel. Just it was a main trade route just filled with robbers and thieves. And so they needed protection. So this is really a very, very brave group of men and women and children that are on this trip. They're going to put their life in jeopardy to obey God's call upon their lives. And so they ask God legitimately for a safe and a, and a smooth journey. And so they prayed to the Lord, and, and were, Ezra tells us, For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road. Apparently, Artaxerxes had offered him a military force to accompany him and those that wanted to go with him. He declined and were given the reason because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all all those who forsake him. And so Ezra had done some kind of sanctified boasting in the Lord and kind of have given the idea that, no, we don't need any our help, any help like that. Our God is so big and he's so great that as long as we're in his will, we don't need any kind of military force. Thanks anyway. Now they're ready to start the journey. Boy, it sure be nice to have military force. Along. You ever done any kind of sanctified boasting in the Lord and a little bit later you go, ooh, I can't back. I wish I hadn't said that. Because if if I didn't say that, I could backtrack because I'm really tempted to backtrack on this right now. And so that's kind of what he's done. They'd like a military force, but he 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 can't ask for it now because he doesn't want to dishonor God. And God's going to honor this. God's going to protect them all the way to Jerusalem. And, and, and so God's got the grace for all of that. He's got the grace for Ezra who comes in and, say, and, and does this, this kind of wonderful faith thing and, and kind of boasting in the Lord and that kind of a deal. And God looks at that and says, I like that. I'll bless that. I'll protect you. Now, later on, when we get in the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, uh, he asks for a military escort <laughs> and he gets it. And God was happy to bless him. So the, the nice thing about it is, is it really deflates the legalists related to this, where we want to look at Ezra and say, all right, you do the sanctified boasting in the Lord, and we don't need any help from any government or anybody. Any, anything we do like that will dishonor God. And then you'd make that the point of your sermon, and then you get to Nehemiah. Oh, it was okay. It was okay to ask for an escort, too. God was happy to bless him either way. And God is very good. He covers us in a lot of different ways. But he's concerned for the glory of God, and uh, rightfully so at that point. And so they fasted, and they sought God related to all of this. And the Lord, isn't that wonderful? He answered our prayer. He got them there safely. And I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, uh, Sherebiah, uh, uh, Hashabiah, and the 10 of their brethren with them, so he's got uh, all of these uh, uh, t- 12 men, very prominent uh, men of integrity, separated them out from among everyone. And he's going to entrust the valuables that they're carrying 
from uh, the, uh, the land of their captivity to Jerusalem, going to entrust it to them for safekeeping. And so, and they weighed them out, weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. So before they left, the king gave them wealth. Uh, the, the officers that were a part of the king's reign, they gave him wealth to bless him on the trip. Other Jews gave uh, material wealth to them. And so they divided it up 12 ways and they um, uh, and gave a little bit to each one of the of the 12. And this is what they divided up. I weighed into their hand 650 talents of silver. That's 25 tons of silver. To, to, now I know why they prayed for protection. They're carrying some wealth here. They're not carrying tokens from Chuck E. Cheese. They had 50 talents of silver. So, uh, uh, th- uh, 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 silver, uh, I mean, 650 talents of silver. Silver articles weighing 100 talents, so about three and three quarter tons of silver articles. 100 talents of, of gold, again, uh, three and three quarter tons of gold. So a lot of wealth here. 20 gold basins worth a thousand drachmas, so about 19 pounds of golden uh, instruments and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. Some very expensive bronze objects were entrusted to them. And he said to these men, you are holy to the Lord. Uh, The articles are holy also. And the silver and the gold are freewill offerings to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel in Jerusalem, in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So here's what's going on. They weigh it out, and they say here uh, to Hashabiah, Hashabiah, here is the weight. They weighed it. This is the weight of silver and gold and bronze that we are entrusting to you. The scribe has his pen out, and he puts it down this many pounds entrusted to him. And so they went through the twelve, and that was entrusted to the families. So that when they got to Jerusalem, they would reweigh it to make sure there were no losses. So there's accountability in handling the financial resources of the Lord. And it's a, and it's a, it's a protection. You remember the Apostle Paul when he sought an offering from among the Gentile churches in the New Testament to bring uh, money as an expression of love and concern for the Jews, Jewish believers in Jerusalem because of a great uh, drought and famine that was going on there at that time. And when resources were sent with him to be taken to Jerusalem, he asked that they would then pick out the men who would then take those resources there. He didn't want to have, he didn't say, great, just give that. No need to count that. I'll just put it right here in my hip pocket and I'll get there and and give it to him. He's a lot wiser than that related to God's money. So there's great accountability built in to handling God's money here. And so that uh, not only so that nothing would be uh, stolen, but also that it would put everybody handling the resources above a false accusation that anything had been stolen. So important to be very, very particular about this area 
of the Christian life and, and God's money. So it was given to them with the realization that one day you're going to give an account for this, just as all of us will one day uh, give an account when we get to kind of the new Jerusalem up in heaven uh, related to what's been entrusted to us. And so the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold, the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. And then we departed from the river of uh, uh, Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the road. And so we came to Jerusalem, again a four-month journey, 900 miles. And so we came to Jerusalem, and we stayed there for three days. And so the three days just kind of... Uh, a, a time to recover uh, from the journey before they got down to the business that was at hand. And on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth and the, uh, the son of Uriah, the priest. And with him, Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and uh, Noadiah, the son of uh, Benuai, with the number and weight of everything, all the weight was written down at that time. So everything returned decent and in order. And the children of those who had been carried away uh, captive, who had come from captivity, they offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All of this was a burnt offering to the Lord. So when Ezra hits Jerusalem, uh, he shows up at, with those that had traveled with him, and they make sure that things are taken care of financially, and then the very first thing that they do is they offer sacrifices to the Lord. So here you have a man who is not only very skilled in the Scriptures, uh, uh, a great student of the Scriptures and teacher of the Scriptures, but he's a worshiper of God. The one doesn't do any good without the other, because there's no power in it. There's no authority in it. So this is a man who loved God. And when he comes in and makes this the first thing that he does, word begins to start to trickle out among the children of Israel that a new level of spirituality has just arrived in Jerusalem in the form of this man. And truly, a new level of spirituality had arrived in the form of Azariah. And they gathered, the, they delivered the king's orders from Artaxerxes to the king's officials and governors in the region beyond the river. And so they gave support to the people in the house of God as the decree uh, had required that, that they would do. In chapter 9, when these things were done, the leaders of the people who were in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, they came to me saying, the, the people of Israel and the priests... And the Levites have not separated themselves, made themselves holy from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations, that is, the idolatry of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. So they haven't kept themselves holy as the scripture uh, required them to do. They're engaging the uh, idolatry of these people. And here's the specific complaint, how it all came about. 
For they have taken some of their daughters, Jewish daughters, as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Now, when you see that word trespass in the Old Testament, it's a little different than sin. Sin is something where I can be trying as hard as I can to do the right thing in a situation and I fall short of the biblical standard. Trespass is to know better. It's it's not sinning in ignorance. It's to know what God's word says and I'm going to do that anyway. It's willful, deliberate sin. And it's a word that's used for that in the Old Testament. And so these leaders... They approached Ezra, and now Ezra is going to find out, as we talked about at the beginning, he's going to find out why God put it on his heart to go to Jerusalem and teach the Word of God. Why would I need to go to Jerusalem and teach the Word of God? They got the temple, and they got all kinds of priests. They got all kinds of Levites. They're in the place everybody dreams of being. Why would I go there? Why would you have to send a man 900 miles on a four-month journey to do something surely everybody is doing? Or surely there's a hundred men that could do the same thing. We try to figure out the will of God. God knew there wasn't anyone in the city of Jerusalem to take care of what needed to be taken care of. And now they come and they tell this to him. And suddenly he realizes, all right, God, I see how you're working both ends of this thing. I get it. I see why you put this on my heart. And then you made a way for this to happen. So the leaders, they approached Ezra. Not all uh, all of the leaders of Israel, but just the ones that weren't involved in the sin. And I think that the spirituality of Ezra and his love for the word of God and his obedience to the word of God impacted them in a very, very deep way. And they felt that in him there was someone of a very high spiritual authority that could address a sin that had not only permeated uh, the children of Israel as a whole, but even in the ranks of the priests. So where do these leaders go? Where do they go to deal with deliberate disobedience to the word of God when the priests are the chief violators of the word of God. You can't go higher than that. In terms of the structure that was there. It's like being in a church. And the whole leadership of the church. Is in sin. You say who can I go to? You go to God. That's what people evidently did. But all of the positions that are supposed to be making a stand for righteousness. Doing the right thing. They're all engaged in the sin. Very frustrating place to be. And so they recognized here. In him that this was someone who would have the ability, the spiritual, you know, heft and authority to address even the priests and bring them to repentance. And so uh, this was that they found in Ezra an ability to bypass the priests and in a sense jump over their heads to address the problems. And I think that Ezra's return probably stirred up their consciences as they reflected on the word of God and they realized as he comes on the scene, they realize something's got to be done about this situation. 
Something's got to be done about this sin or otherwise we're going to be yanked out of the land a, a second time by the Lord. And so this was their complaint, this marrying in against what the scriptures had said, marrying in not only into Gentile blood, but into their religions and into their uh, paganism. And so apparently this sin had begun to um, entrench itself among the Jewish people following the death uh, of Zerubbabel. So they were marrying these their idolatrous Gentile neighbors and one of the major prohibitions of God's word was that his people were not to marry outside of the community of believers. Exodus chapter 34, verse 16. And um, well, I'll start a little early. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I'm driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. And he uh, forbid it as well in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 4. And God, when God forbids something in the scriptures, he doesn't always give the reasons why. Because, because there's no need to. If, we're in a, if he's the Lord and he says it and we do it, then he doesn't have to explain everything. He explained the wisdom, and the wisdom is perfection behind every one of his commands in the Scripture. We would each of us need a, a gigantic truck to bring the Bible in to church services, just to haul it around. So he doesn't always explain himself. But there's wisdom behind everything that he's talking about. There's reasons for every command that he has given in the Scriptures. And one of the reasons for this prohibition of marrying into the Gentile nations and all of their idolatry was so that the Jews would not lose their spiritual distinctiveness and, and not end up being absorbed by the pagan Gentile peoples around them. And most significantly related to that, the concern of God was that God had declared that he would bring a Messiah into the world the Savior into the world, into human history, through the Jewish people, through Jewish bloodlines. You'd be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. And if that bloodline got completely absorbed by the Gentile world, then how is he going to keep his promise to bring a Savior, to bring Jesus into the world through that bloodline? So it shows us there are no small commandments as opposed to big commandments of God. Just because God doesn't explain why what we perceive might be a smaller commandment to the nth degree to us, it doesn't make it a small commandment. They're all there for a reason. He didn't prohibit anything more than needed to be prohibited. Everything he prohibited needed to be prohibited. That's just the way that the word of God is. And this is what was at stake. The issue wasn't racial, but it was spiritual. And any Jewish man 
at the time of Ezra, who violated God's command in regard to this and married a Gentile, was essentially communicating they didn't have any concern for God, any concern for his promises, any concern for his plans, any concern for the salvation of the world. My pleasure, my will, my uh, selfishness is exalted and, and more important to me than everything that God has planned. And it's absolutely uh, uh, reckless what they were doing here in, in marrying into these, into these families. And so the command was given to maintain the spiritual distinctiveness of, uh, of the children of Israel. You take a man like Solomon, the son of David, who, w- who had a tremendous spiritual uh, heritage, and yet he began to marry foreign wives who did not convert to Judaism. He married them in their pagan state, and they brought all of their idols and everything, not only into his palace, but into the land of Israel as a whole. And despite the the greatness of his spiritual foundation and heritage, he ends up worshiping all of these false gods and and engaging them in all of that. The Bible teaches that we're commanded the same thing as Christians. We are not to marry a non-Christian but only a Christian, Second Corinthians chapter six. That does, don't, if you're married already, I'm not talking to you. You're, the die is cast for you. But when, if you're unmarried and you're looking to marry, we can only marry another Christian. Paul wrote to Second Corinthians six: Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Folks, that's us. And so he said, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And it's for the same reasons that God prohibits us as Christians to marry outside of of the faith, outside of this brotherhood, his family. Because if we marry into a pagan situation then now we're marrying not just a human being, but we're marrying an entire belief system. We're marrying into idolatry. Everybody worships God. It's just a matter of which God that they worship. And so God wants us to marry and for the husband and wife in a Christian marriage to be a nurturer and an encourager of their spouse's relationship with God. And, and for the home and for the marriage life, not to be one where the godly spouse is constantly having to defend their relationship with God or to find some anonymous place to practice it within the house because he won't let this kind of, of a thing. So, so they would be mutually nurturing one another in the relationship with God. It's always easier to pull someone down than to pull someone up. So if I stand on the edge of this stage, it wouldn't take, we could, I don't know, go into the fifth and sixth grade classroom. It would be easier for one of them to pull me down off of this stage than for me to pull them up on the stage. Always easier to pull down than to pull up. And so God said, this is the way that I, I want uh, things to, uh, to be and, and, and how 
the, the marrying is supposed to occur. Of course, the leaders and the rulers of the Jews, as he said, had been foremost in the trespass. In other words, those that had, should have been the strongest in resisting it, they, they had participated uh, in it. And, and so this sin reached in the very highest ranks of, of, uh, of the people in the most important area of all, which is in the area of, of spiritually. God had not brought them, this group of people, back from Babylonian captivity to go back to Jerusalem, build a temple, and then incrementally reintroduce the sins of the pagan nation around them back into their lives to force him to judge them all over again. God hasn't saved us as Christians out of the bondage and the captivity of this world so that we would then become free of sin, so that we would then use that freedom to reintroduce ever so slowly over ever so long a period of time the things that once held us in bondage back into our lives so we return to the same condition and back under the judgment of God again. So this was the point that God was making uh, to them. So he has saved us to be conformed in the image of Christ And he hasn't saved us to be a slightly holier version or a slightly Christianized version of what we were before we became Christians or a slightly Christianized version of the world. And this is the kind of thing that's happening more and more in professing Christianity today where pastors are massaging The clear teaching of the word of God intended to produce a very holy and a very distinct people in this world in order to accommodate all manner of carnality and worldliness in our lives as Christians. And it's so stupid. Stupid is in the new King James. The old King James, it's brutish. But the whole idea is that I'm going to lower the biblical standard in my life and as a Christian live as close to the world as I can possibly live so that the world will look at my life and come to the conclusion that I'm really not very much different from them except I've put my faith in Jesus. Why in the world would they become what I am if I'm so willing to become what they are? They just got to wait a little bit longer. And then we'll offer their sacrifices for them on their altars. And the whole pressure to be cool and to be accepted by the world. There is nothing more uncool. I know cool. I am not cool, but I know cool. And there is nothing. And when you're cool, you don't have to say anything about it. You just are that. They're one in a million. Trust me. The zillions of wannabes. But about the most uncool thing in the whole world is a Christian who is trying to act like the world in the hopes that the world will think they're cool. It's like half a dozen teachers I had in junior high. Wearing many skirts up to here. We're talking about the 60s and 70s and doing all this kind of stuff and everything. And I'm sitting there. I'm 13 years old. I said, what are you doing? 
didn't say it. I wanted to pass all my classes. But it was just a ridiculous thing to a kid, to a little punk. You can see right through it. So the folly of it. Now, I am different than the world. By the grace of God, I'm different than the world. By the grace of God, I'm different than I was before I came to know Christ. And there's nothing scary about holiness. And there's nothing wrong with holiness. And there's nothing wrong with becoming more and more and more and more like Christ. Because the only people you're going to get out of the world to become Christians are people who are wanting to see something real anyway. They're really looking for meaning and purpose in life. They're looking for reality. They know a con from a hundred yards. People know what a con is today. But when the thing's working in somebody's heart, they want to see something different. And they want to see that truth in action before they listen to someone like me or you say it to them. There's nothing wrong with being holy. Absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. Nothing scary about obeying God's word. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it, and he who does the will of God, abides forever. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. First John chapter 2, Romans chapter 12. So they deliver this report to Ezra, and you notice what Ezra's response was in verse uh, 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and I tore my robe and I plucked out some of the hair on my head and my beard and I sat down astonished. When's the last time you saw someone react to willful disobedience in a child of God in that way? This guy is in another league spiritually. He has been fashioned by God in another place to be introduced into this situation so they can see that. In the ancient world, when you tore your clothes, that was an expression of the fact that what you have just told me has torn my mind in half. And it has torn my heart in half. That God's people could be doing something like this. And he pulls the hair right out of his head and out of his beard. In the Old Testament, one of the ways that men would express grief is they'd shave their heads. This news has hit him so hard and so fast, he can't call for a razor. So he does what he can. He is expressing his grief every way he knows how. And when he's done, he sits down astonished. And the word in the Hebrew means he's put absolutely in the place of silence. 
He doesn't know what to say. There's nothing that he can think to say. What he has just heard is so unthinkable to him, all he can do is sit down and process this thing with God. He is stunned by the news that he has heard from from these leaders. It has absolutely traumatized them. It has virtually almost killed him here. And then at the evening sacrifice, he said, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord, my God. And so he has this reaction and and then he heads in to begin after a significant period of time to begin to process it with the Lord in prayer. He's astonished. Because God's people were returning to the very sins that resulted in the Babylonian captivity. They'd only recently been rescued from the Babylonian captivity. And and here engaging in the willful, deliberate disobedience to God's commandments. And knowing that that disobedience would lead them into captivity once again. So again, I look at this passage, and to me, it's one of the most powerful passages for holiness in all the Bible. Right here in uh, uh, verse 3 of Ezra chapter 9. And I just look at that, and I just sit, and I just want to absorb the power of Ezra's reaction to casual sin, not in the world but among God's people. And I want it to impact me. And when I look at this, I say to myself, God, I'm a nothing and I'm a nobody. But I don't, I want to be an Ezra. I do not want to be one of those priests or one of those Levites or one of those leaders walking in that kind of hypocrisy. I want to walk into a situation of carnality among God's people. And I don't want to be welcomed. I don't want to be patted on the back. I don't want any of that to happen. I want my presence by the Spirit of God to create a discomfort in people. If that's the way that they're living. And I would want, if I was living in that kind of condition, to have someone else do that to me in my life. But this is the kind of impact. No child of God can be too obedient to God's word. You say this is a Sunday night Bible study. That's an obvious thing from the Bible. I'll say it again. No child of God can be too obedient to God's word. We cannot be too holy in this world. We cannot be too Christ-like in this world. We cannot be too serious about God's work in this world. It is an impossibility related to our lives. It should not be a concern of a single Christian that we would be too holy or too serious or too obedient in our Christian life and that it's frightening people off. It won't frighten off the right people. It'll never do that. Don't be afraid to be spiritual. Don't be afraid to be spiritual 
in the context of Christians who are looking every which way to massage the scriptures and find a way around their clear teaching to accommodate their sin and their carnality. Don't you change. They need to change. We need to change if that marks us tonight. Don't you lower the standard. You be drop-dead serious about the things of God. And the younger the better. I'm 56 years old, so I'm not an old man at all. I'm oldish. I know what it is to be young, and I see what it is to be old. It's on both sides of me in an equal measure. But never have I measured time and recognized the importance of time the way that I do now ever in the rest of my life. But don't wait till you're 80. Don't wait till you're 65. Don't wait till you're 85 to realize that we only get one crack at this life. We only get one crack at this Christianity to live it as fully as it can be lived on the basis of the Word of God. And if we fritter that away and we waste that, we waste something we will never get back again. And this is the way to live without any regret at the end of our lives. I used to play a lot of basketball. Too much, but I loved it. And God has redeemed it in some ways. I never, when I was in high school, I never looked for the games where the junior hires were playing in the open gyms. Where are the college players playing? Where are the games where they're going to absolutely crush me, but I'm going to learn something by being in their presence? That's the game that I wanted to be in. And I would sit out several games. We would lose, and then you get in line, and you wait four games to pick up the winner, and you do it to play that kind of competition on a Saturday. That's the way it was. But the same thing is true spiritually. Not to just waste our time being dumbed down by the dumbing down that is going on. Who's, who are the authors? Who are the teachers? Who are the Christians in a church nationwide, in, in a worldwide? Who are the ones that are living this kind of a life with that kind of a passion and then expose ourselves to them? I think the greatest danger, and I think it'll happen in our lifetime, the greatest danger to Ezra's and to people like you and me who want to live like that, we don't want to be a spiritual lightweight. We want to experience this Christian life as much as it can be experienced this side of heaven. I am not concerned about the world, what the world is going to do to people like us. I know what they think. I know what they're about. I understand all of that. That's a world I came from. I get it. The ones that will do us the greatest harm are professing Christianity, Christians, who do not want to live this book. And they will paint people like you and I into a quarter and make us look like the nutcases. Make us look like the fanatical, stupid idiots in Christianity. They're the ones that will slit our throats. They're the ones that will stab us in the back. 
And if that's the kind of Christianity that you live, that you accommodate the Scriptures to accommodate your sinful carnal life, I know you're the one that will kill me someday. You're the one that will turn me in someday. You're the one that will destroy my reputation in order to... uh, maintain some credibility for you. And I'm not talking about me as a pastor. I'm talking about as a Christian. That's the dangerous group in the world today. And Ezra comes on the scene, and wonderfully, he doesn't care anything about it at all. And so he takes and processes it now with the Lord in terms of prayer. And then he said, oh, my God. I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up into the heavens. And so here he is, and he begins to pray uh, to the Lord related to uh, all of this, falls on, uh, on his knees, again, a posture of humility in his prayer. He lifts up his hands to the Lord. He's just a symbol of surrender and a symbol of, of transparency. And he just expressed his shame and his humiliation over the sin of God's people. And you notice there in verse 6 that this sin was not a small thing in his eyes. Even though everybody else almost had gotten used to it, he said concerning this sin, it is so great that it overwhelmed the righteous and it has reached up into heaven. And he confesses the sin of God's people and he blames God's people for being in this place. He doesn't say, you know, those dirty, rotten, stinking pagans. I mean, they'll come get you from one angle or another. And you've got to be careful of them. And I tell you, if it weren't for those Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites and all those, man, would you just hammer them, Lord? He doesn't blame a single pagan in this prayer. Because they weren't responsible. Pagans don't know better. I use the term affectionately, by the way. A parasite doesn't know any better. A Hivite doesn't know any better. A Jebusite doesn't know any better. A Philistine doesn't know any better. An unsaved Scot doesn't know anything better. But God's people knew better. These marriages would have never occurred if God's people hadn't violated the standard of God's word. So they, he said, they, they didn't know any better. They don't know any better. I don't expect them to know any better. We know better. That's why we're in this position that we're in. He said, to the days of our fathers, to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And he just confessed their past sin and how it resulted in destruction and how it resulted in, in captivity. And he said, and now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. To leave us a remnant to escape the bondage and to give us just a little peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves 
Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God and to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And basically he's saying to God, God, you have been so good to us. We went into captivity because we deserved it. We had no right to demand to return to the land. That was 100% your grace. And Lord, I am ashamed to declare to you that your grace and your goodness in our life is being repaid to you in this way. The first opportunity to disobey your word, they're back at it. He speaks of them as a peg. A peg was just a little, we would call it a nail in the wall or a little hook that you hang something on. He said, you gave us the temple once again. And we got a couple of Jewish neighborhoods in Jerusalem. We just got a little, tiny, little thing back in the land. We used to have the whole land. We just got this little thing. And this little thing that we've gotten has so lifted us up in pride that we think that we can just willfully disobey you and that it's going to be okay and that you won't take that peg away from us. He said, and now, oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, and he uses the word we because of his humility, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess, entering into possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to the other with their impurity. And now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to the Lord. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquity deserves and have given us such deliverance of this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? And you can, and you can insert any sin you want to. Into that sentence, would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us so that there would be no remnant or, or, or survivor? And he's saying, God, when you sent us into judgment, you were righteous and we were unrighteous. And, O oh Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. And here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you. Because of this. And then the breakthrough occurs in chapter 10. There's a new spirituality in Jerusalem. And when Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing and weeping and bowing down before the house of God, I mean, you can picture the, the passion of the prayer engaging his whole body. So he's probably repeating some of this as he's just praying and praying. And then a very large assembly of men and women, they came just quietly. They gathered to him from Israel. And the people began to weep very bitterly in the presence of this great 
example of holiness and this great example of intercession being lifted up to the Lord. It's a fascinating thing here. There were people in the land that felt the same way that Ezra did about the sin that the, that the priests and the Levites were committing. But they needed a leader to come on the scene and to express what they were feeling inside of them and then to join that and, and to be a support of that. And God knew that they needed that kind of a leader to follow in this confronting of sin and this repentance. So you know what God did? He sent one to journey 900 miles over four months so that the righteous would have someone to rally around in order to remove this wickedness from among God's people. And so they begin to recognize the gravity of the sin as they see the reaction of this man. It just said, we haven't, we haven't seen in our lifetimes anyone respond to sin in this way. And Shechaniah, the son of Jael, one of the sons of Elam, he spoke up and he said to Ezra, we have trespassed. That's no excuses here, no ignorance. We did it deliberately, trespassed against our God. And we have taken pagan wives from the people of Israel. And yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of all of this. And he's going to give a proposal for how to fix this problem. And the proposal that he's going to give is a thing called repentance. And it's good that he stands up and he suggests the solution to it. Ezra could have, but it's more powerful when it comes from the person that's repenting of the sin. So here they are guilty before God, and, and Shechaniah is one of the men that is guilty, and yet he says at the end of verse 2, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. You say, where's the hope? Repentance and obedience. The word repentance means to have a change of mind that produces a change of direction in life. And that's, that's where the hope is in a situation like that. The possibility of repentance. Repentance, sorrow is not repentance. Paul wrote and he said, godly sorrow works repentance. Godly sorrow is valuable. The difference between human sorrow, where I am sorry that I got caught, I'm sorry I'm having to deal with the consequences of my sin, rather than a godly sorrow that says, God, I'm sorry that I have muddied your reputation and I have muddied my own testimony. The difference between those two, a godly sorrow worketh repentance. It will always translate into repentance. And so the hope of the situation is that now people are thinking about the sin, having a change of mind about it now, and wanting to change their direction. And now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and those who have been born to them, the children of this union, and according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Now, that word, that passage there, those who tremble at the commandment of our God, you notice in chapter 9, verse 4, and everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. You think about that. The words of God. Now, if that's true, and if this Bible 
is a record of the word of God than anything that he says that we are even tempted to violate should produce a trembling inside of us, a fear of disobeying it. That's a proper handling and and recognition of the word of God. I fear God. I love God. He's my best friend in the whole wide world. I know he loves me. I know he's gracious toward me. I know he has forgiven me. I know he will forgive me. I know he is good. I know all these things about him. But in that whole package, I also fear him. I fear when I am tempted to commit transgression against him and sin. That I am putting him in a place of being faithful to his word to judge the violation of that sin and, and his being able to be as intimate and as close to me as he wants to be. And so there's great reverence and great fear for him. I know you have the same thing in your life. And it's a wonderful package. The fear of God is never at the expense of intimacy with God. Or being strong in the grace of God. They're complementary. They both do something needed in our lives. And so here is this, is this attitude of the people toward the word of God. They trembled at even the thought of disobeying the word of God. And so he said, let it be done according to the law. He said, we need to put away these wives and even the children that have been born as a result of these, this union. I, I know I, I just my clock says I got two minutes left. I don't know what yours says because I don't even care what this one says. Why would I care what yours says? How hard is this repentance going to be? Don't tell me out loud. How hard? Was this repentance going to be for these men to make this thing right? It's going to be really hard. Repentance can be extraordinarily hard to make things right, to change direction and do whatever it is to know that in this moment in time, as best as I can understand, I am right with God. But no matter what the sacrifice is required to do that, and no matter how difficult and painful it might be, it needs to be done. And so the call for the call and the willingness to repent, this was not a small thing this man was saying and saying on behalf of the guilty. And then he says to Ezra, arise for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. In other words, you've been sent here to do this by God. We all get that now. Now we need you to be strong to do what you've been called to do. And a great encouragement to Ezra. And then Ezra arose and he made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear an oath that they would do according to this word, and so they swore an oath to keep that commitment. A swearing of an oath to God was the highest vow you could make. And then Ezra, he rose up from before the house of God, and he went into the chamber of uh, Jehohanan, the son of Elishab, 
And when he came there, he ate no bread. He continued the fast. He drank no water. He continued the fast for he mourned because of the guilt of those from captivity. Why didn't he order a big feast to come in? Because all he has at this moment in time are words. He is not going to stop mourning until he sees words turn into obedience and action. And then the grief will come off his heart. And so they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instruction of the leaders and elders, all of his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity, from Jewish fellowship. And so here is this, uh, they don't turn around and say, well, let's form a committee and then do this in phases or what. There's no better time to repent than now. So there's an urgency about it. And so all of the men of Judah, Benjamin, they gathered at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month. And so we're talking about the middle of December. And all uh, in terms of our calendar, all the people sat in the open square of the house of the Lord. And they were trembling for two reasons, because of the seriousness of this spiritual matter. And also because it was raining very, very heavy at the time. And then Ezra the priest, he stood up and he said to them, you have transgressed. Now, you want a picture. We're so politically correct today. We so don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We will let them drive their life right off of a cliff without confronting uh, uh, people, Christians with sin. Doing it right, doing it in love and all that. I'm not saying to be the Holy Spirit or sin sniff or anything like that. But the Bible says that we're to exhort one another daily, especially as we see the day of the Lord's return approaching. And I'll tell you, when you're dealing with this kind of a situation, the, the single greatest thing after love and biblical accuracy is clarity. And you look at how absolutely clear he is in terms of what he says to them. You have transgressed. So he, he confronts them with their sin. And you have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. He then lets them know, not only confronts them with their sin, but lets them know the seriousness of the sin. You have put the future of the entire nation of Israel, of God's people in Jerusalem and in Israel, you have put that in jeopardy by your sin. Makes them see how big the picture is. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. So there's the confession, the, the call to confess the sin and to repent and to make things right. Very direct, very clear. And then all of the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there were many people. A lot of people involved in this sin, and it was the season for heavy rain, and we were not, and we were, are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed this matter. So here was the proposal for the, the people responded with a proposal. Please let the leaders of the entire assembly stand. Let all those 
uh, in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and the judges of their hometowns until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from this matter. It's raining. It's freezing cold. This is going to be a, a long period of time to process all of this. Additionally, it needs to be done decently in an order because a Jewish man could have married a Gentile woman if she had become a convert, a proselyte to, to Judaism, and was a worshiper of Jehovah. So just because this man is a Jewish man and he is married to a Gentile wife didn't automatically put them all in the same category. So someone, preferably in their hometown who knew the circumstances, they're being very measured here and careful, who can really weigh this rather than just coming in and everybody's head gets chopped off on this thing, to come in and really do this thing right and biblically accurate, this was what was being proposed, decently in an order. So this was the proposal that was made, and only Jonathan, the son of Ashahel, and uh, uh, Jehaziah, the son of Tikva, they opposed this for whatever reason, and Meshulam, and uh, Sabbatai, whatever, uh, the Levite, he, they gave uh, support to this. And then the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest, with the certain heads of the father's households, they were set apart by their father's households, each of them by name. They sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives and so it took a period of three months to do this properly. And then there is the rest of the chapter, the list of the offenders. Notice in eight, verse 18, and among the sons of the priests, uh, there, there's a listing uh, of their name. In verse 19, uh, not only did they do the right thing in their repentance, but being guilty, we're told they presented a, lamb, a ram of the flock as their trespass offering because they were priests. Their sin was even more grievous than the others. And so they offered this sin sacrifice. So there were 17 priests that were engaged in all of this. And then in verse 23, there's the listing of the Levites. So the priests are kind of the elders of the church. And, and the Levites were kind of the deacons of, uh, of, in the Old Testament covenant. There were ten of them that had married into all of, uh, all of this. And among them, there was a member of the singers. So the worship team was involved. Uh, and also the gatekeepers. So the greeters were involved. And so God just kind of really just worked his way all the way through uh, everything. So it really worked its way through. And then you get into uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 25, all the way through to the end. And there's a listing of 84 others from around the nation that didn't have these positions that repented and made things right. Now, in terms of putting away their wives, I personally, we don't know exactly what happened there in, ter in terms of what happened to the wives, what happened to the families. I'm inclined in, in, in knowing a little bit about the law of Moses and how, uh, and how God mm, was very careful to uh, take care of kind of uh, like a, uh, you know, a marriage situation where there would be a wife that was in some kind of a vulnerable situation. The, the husband was to care for her for the rest of her life, no matter how complicated his life got. And so I, ha I, 
I have no doubt that these Jewish men, in the light of the weight of the law, supported their wives and children for the rest of their lives. They just simply were not married and did not have that kind of a relationship the rest of their lives. Perhaps these pagan wives were also allowed to return to their families, which would have been normal in the ancient world, to then live the rest of their lives among, uh, among their own family. But the scriptures are silent uh, related uh, to that. So we finish the book of Ezra tonight. book of Nehemiah will be Again, that next week. And in the Jewish Bible, it's just one book. They just keep going right on through. The chronology uh, continues. And the sad thing about everything that Ezra did is that by the time Nehemiah comes on the scene and we go into Nehemiah, they do it all over again. And they got a tough cookie in Nehemiah because when he comes into that mess, he's he's Nehemiah. So every generation has to look at it. Every life has to look at it. We don't know what what are Christians going to be if the Lord tarries 100 years from now in the United States of America. I don't know. That's not my problem. All I can control is what kind of a Christian am I here tonight. And I love the strength and the beauty. I just think Ezra is one of the most overlooked men in the whole Bible for the good thing that his life does in our lives as Christians. In a time where we are just like this ancient situation where all of the pressure, I mean almost all of the pressure, if you want to say is it 90, 10, 80, 20, 60, 40, I don't know, you tell me, related to your life. But almost all of the pressure is downward. It's toward compromise. It's toward carnality. It's toward lukewarmness. Rather than toward spiritual greatness, And hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord from the very lips of our Savior when we stand before him someday and look right into those eyes of his. And Ezra gives us that challenge, and it's a good challenge, and it's a needed one, and I hope it's been a blessing tonight. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, tonight for your voice and your word. We thank you for the life of Ezra. We thank you that your word is a living word. It has something to say to us as your people in every generation. And thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that this book is to holiness, to greatness, Lord, to the things of you 100%. Thank you for being able to study your word together tonight and to do it in fellowship with you and your Holy Spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.